Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the state of Colorado ordered its residents to shelter in place in response to the spread of coronavirus, writers Pam Houston and Amy Irvine, who had never met, began a correspondence based on their shared devotion to the rugged, windswept mountains that surround their homes, one on either side of the Continental Divide. As the numbers of infected and dead rose and the nation split dangerously over the crisis, Houston and Irvine found their letters to one another as, a, as necessary as breath. Tory House Press has collected those letters. The result is a new book titled Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place, which is part tribute to wilderness, part indictment against tyranny and greed, and reveals the evolution of a friendship that galvanizes as it chronicles a strange new world. Pam Houston is author of Deep Creek and Cowboys Are My Weakness and other books, and she lives at 9,000 feet above sea level near the headwaters of the Rio Grande. Nabi Irvine is author of Trespass and Desert Cabal. She lives and writes on a remote mesa in southwest Colorado, just spitting distance from her Utah homeland. I reached uh, Pam Houston and Amy Irvine on Thursday. Pam Houston, you uh, in one of these letters, uh, you get to a point where you say, I think Amy Irvine asks you, you know, what are you writing these days? And and we, we can talk about that a little later, but you... You say something that strikes me. You'd say that some things, at least at that point, you felt that some things weren't worth writing about anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's such, it's such a tricky... I mean, I think it's a really important question, and it's such a tricky thing to talk about because, you know, I'm telling my students every day, no, your stories do matter. Your stories are all that matters, you know? Like, we we are in dire straits right now as a country and especially in the West with the climate and the drought, but, but really, you know, the whole country and, and, in fact, the whole world. But so, and stories are the thing that move people to action. They, they move people to empathy. They, um, you know, we're suffering so greatly from a kind of meism in America, and, and stories are what makes you see the other person's story and, and, and to have empathy and compassion and to maybe change your mind or your vote or your, um, or your way of being to reflect that, that compassion. I also think, you know, COVID is an amazing time for learning, like all the things that don't matter as much. You know, I used to fly 100,000 miles a year, and that was really creeping up on me as this massive guilt trip in this time of climate catastrophe. And, and you know, suddenly I haven't been on an airplane since uh, early February, and, you know, everything's fine. I'm not dead. <laughs> like, like my lifestyle and the things I did, you know, I think COVID is an opportunity for us to, to be more creaturely. Um, but in terms of my own stories, uh, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, was, raised, I was raised by a, a, a malignant narcissist. Uh, I have some experience with what we're seeing coming out of Washington, some personal experience. I feel like I'm a fighter, and I feel like it's my job right now to... Um, to be political, you know, I, I I was raised in a time of literature and graduate school where, like, you should be anything but political. Never tell your reader how to think. You know, everything is about the metaphor. It's about the noun. It's about the image. You know, any time a writer gets political, they're being pedantic and um, you know, and luxury, and nobody wants to read that. That was the the climate that I went to school in. You know, back in the eighties and nineties, and now I just feel like, you know, our lives depend on becoming active, engaged political writers. And whether that takes the form of a short story, you know, where I have a woman character who is, um, you know, posting uh, poems by Roske on, on teepees full of um, hunters and mountain men, or whether it's you know, just a flat-out call to action that I write as nonfiction, you know, that's, that's what, a, what is occurring to me to write. But by the same token, I, I go to my students and, you know, lots of women who are writing about getting out of abusive situations, lots of underrepresented writers who are telling their stories for the first time. Even if their stories are not explicitly political, I, it, it's, I think all stories have value, and now more than ever. 
I'm sorry, that was long. No, that <laughs> was a complicated no, it was, question. No, no, it was, <laughs> that was good. That was good. Uh, I want to get a, a reaction from uh, Amy Irvine. What did it has? What do you think about what uh, Pam Houston just said? And and has your view of the role of the writer or has your writing changed uh, during these COVID times? Well, um, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Pam says. I, as you know, Tom, um, was fairly political from the, the get-go, and um, and so was quite used to being in that realm. And 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 so I look back at at some of the writing before that just felt like you know where I got threats and there was a lot of pushback and. And that definitely happened with uh, Desert Cabal, because I guess women aren't supposed to talk directly to Abby. Um, <laughs> but I, because the book, for the, the listeners who don't know, was um, a conversation I had with Edward Abbey about uh, Desert Solitaire 50 years hence, and just like, wow, things have really changed. Um, some people took it as sort of a bombastic, knock him off his pedestal kind of thing, which was could not be further for them from the truth. It was a conversation that I would have had with anybody I cared deeply about and who had had a, an enormous influence on my life and cared about the same things I did. Uh, but So I was used to that, but I look back, I mean, Desert Cabal came out in 2018, and already that seems so much easier than what we're doing now in terms of telling stories and how we... Uh, that, you know, and, and how we go about convincing people this is the story we want to tell. Um, and that's why I'm so happy, delighted to see Tory House Press come, a, come into its own so brilliantly. Um, it's an intrepid group of women writers, and they said yes to Desert Cabal, which, uh, despite some real pushback um, about publishing it, they went ahead and, and stood with me on it. And then they did it again with this book. We called and said, we didn't know we had a book. We started writing letters for a magazine uh, piece, and once we published those 3,000 words, Pam and I kept writing because it seemed like the only thing that mattered, the most lucid, sane, grounding thing we were doing in during the pandemic. And we just kept going, and one day we both said to each other, we have a book, don't we? And, and Pam, having been published, you know, working with publishers in New York, uh, me more recently with Tory House Press, uh, said, yeah, but nobody in New York is going to touch this. I said, I know just the, the women who will touch this, and called Kirsten Allen, the publisher at Tory House Press, and said, I've got, we've got something for you. And she said, are you crazy? It's the pandemic. It's not in the budget. Nobody's publishing new stuff right now. This is, you know, like it's just unfeasible. And I said, well, let me tell you about the project. And they were on board in about two minutes. And I think not only are we reacting more quickly, uh, in fact, it was very hard to end the book where we ended it because, of course, the news cycle, there was something new every day. And, uh, for example, when George Floyd was killed, it really felt like we needed to to say, speak to that. And even though we had confronted racism quite a bit in the letters, and and we just had to stop where we were at that point in time. We couldn't keep gathering it all in. So I feel like not only is this a time when all bets are off for what you publish and how you publish, um, it's it's also um, something that you do you can do quite quickly um, if you have somebody who's as intrepid as the Tory House Press team. I, the only thing I would just add to that is you know we're seeing daily in the news you know, and have for many months now people being punished by this administration for speaking out. And um, and so I just think, uh, just as a, a final note, you know, I mean, I am, I am literally afraid of a, a moment in the future of this country when we wouldn't be able to write a book like Airmail, um, not to mention Desert Cabal, not to mention uh, so many other books that I could name. And... Um, the more of us who are speaking, um, you know, the harder it will be for the administration to silence us. And, um, and you know, a, a group like Tory House, you know, just to echo what Amy said, it, like they're, they are serving the, the, the West and the country in so many ways with the books they're choosing to do um, and the way they're choosing to do them. 
I want to talk about uh, in this, this this internet age and the frantic age, and uh, I think it's Pam Houston. You talked about you describe yourself as a workaholic, right? Uh, fit more mm-hmm. more and more events and love of travel, right? Uh, felt a little right. guilty about it, right? Um, and, and doing versus being, um, mm-hmm. and and we go from from that to lockdown period, and I think still. Mm-hmm. You know, life is still quieted down pretty good. I'll start with uh, Pam Houston on this one. Um, but but the, I guess the power of writing by letter, the, the old lost art, letter writing. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, we've been moving so fast because once we wrote the letters and then Tori House said, yes, we, we did two months of editing in 10 days and now we're on tour and, you know, one day we will sit down and look back and say, wow, like we made a friendship, you know, the old fashioned way. Like we made a real friendship and a real sisterhood, you know, just by writing these letters. And, and I mean, that's a, a small, beautiful thing, you know, in a time of a lot of divisiveness and, and, and a lot of, you know, when a lot of things are breaking, you know, we forged this friendship and, um, the letters were, I mean, you know, Amy said this, but, you know, I feel so lucky too, that I get to teach online, that I get to do my job online. You know, I haven't, my schedule has not particularly calmed down. Um, my travel certainly has, but not my work schedule. So, um, and I feel very lucky about that. So it hasn't been that super calm, quiet, sleep heavy period that we imagined in those early letters, not for me. And I know not for Amy either, but all that said, you know, this, as you say, this like old art of letter writing, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful thing, you know, and, and of course with the internet, fewer and fewer and fewer people write actual letters. I still have a few friends who do, but, um, but we built a a friendship and a, and a sisterhood and a relationship and a kind of small coalition of two you know, to fight for the lands we love, you know, we built that just by these letters and that I do, you know, that's a thing. It's a beautiful thing and, and I'm proud of it. And, um, and I'm so grateful to the editor at Orion, Sumanth Prabhakar, who, um, who gave us the idea in the first place, you know, who, who set us up to, to make it. So, Amy Irvine, the, the, your your thoughts on this uh, letter writing in this in this frantic age, um, the tumultuous age, the, the slowing down, writing letters, was that? Form... It was the sweetest thing. It was absolutely the sweetest thing, um, and it kept me sane. It kept me going. It was a chance for me to make sense of the crazy news cycle and the wild swings between hope and despair. Um, rage and just like mad joy and inspiration because it, you know all, it, all these horrible things are happening and yet there are so many good things happening and ri- people rising up against tyranny in ways that we haven't before um not in a long time and certainly not the not not the white citizens of this country um and it it so it was it was exciting and it was sweet and it was um, it made me feel really sane and what I didn't realize uh, and we didn't know how it would be to go on book tour uh, but we decided to to show up and uh, you know small venues outdoors masked um, but we have had these big turnouts and the women the women in the audience and the men too but the women in particular are just. Like, I am so inspired by these letters. I'm so inspired by this sisterhood and this solidarity, and I'm going to go home and start writing letters to my friends. Like, this is something I haven't thought about in decades, really. And and so that was really um, galvanizing for us to keep going, even though it's a little bit scary to, to be out in the world right now. Um, and soon, as soon as we, you know, the weather turns, hopefully it'll turn again someday, um, and the fires will be out, and will get rain and if those things happen then we we will we will go to online venues you're listening to access you time tom williams and uh, this hour i'm talking with the writers amy irvine and pam houston uh, their correspondence over the past uh, several months uh has been turned into a book by tory house press uh, the title is airmail letters of politics pandemics and uh, place 
and uh, we'll have more with them uh, coming up following a break. We'll get into talking about uh, a subject that uh, each of these writers has written a lot about, the land, the wild places that have shaped each of them. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, where researchers have developed an environmentally friendly way to recycle rare earth elements by feeding potato wastewater to a bacterium that dissolves metal. More information is available at inl.gov. Support also comes from Palmer Home Furnishings, celebrating Memorial Day with bedroom sets and mattresses from brands like Maloof, Spring Air, and Serta. Located at 1023 West, 800 North, Suite 101 in Logan. Information at palmerhomefurnishings.com and on Facebook. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah State University. In partnership with Utah Public Radio, we are relaunching and expanding our Utah Women in Leadership podcast series. We'll share research and resources about topics like imposter syndrome, gender and race, the impact of COVID-19 on Utah women and work, body image challenges, and more. Listen at utwomen.org or on your favorite podcast app beginning June 2nd. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the state of Colorado ordered its residents to shelter in place in response to the spread of coronavirus, writers Pam Houston and Amy Irvine, who had never met, began a correspondence. And uh, the result uh, is now a book by Tory House Press, uh, put out by that uh, publishing house. It's called Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and uh, Place. And we're talking with Pam Houston and Amy Irvine on the program today. I want to ask about... Getting back to the land, the land has shaped to both of you uh, so much, and you've chosen to, uh, you know, these wilder places to to make your lives and to write about them as well. Um, so, Pam Houston, you you talked about, and both of you teach. Pam Houston, you talked about you're noticing your your students um, they take less uh, of an interest in the natural world. These are they're taking less and less and less. The, the, you're noticing a trend. Yeah, I I think it is true. Um, you know, it depends on my students. I, I teach um, at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, which is a um, proportionally 75 to 80% Native and First Nation population. And, of course, um, you know, there are urban Natives and urban First Nations, but by and large, my students there are very connected to the land, a lot of them to the southwestern desert, and they um, so it's it's not true about them. My my students in in at UC Davis have definitely become over the twenty two I think years that I've taught there have definitely become much more interested in online reality and um, less and less interested. You know, I think in I think 15 years ago, if I were to ask students, you know, how many of you go backpacking, how many of you sleep on the ground, uh, you know, that would have been a smattering, six to ten out of a class of 30 maybe, and now I'm lucky if there's one or two. Um, those students do tend to find me, you know, one way or another, and so I still have that connection with them. But I do think, um, you know, I mean, there, we could talk all day about how the cyber world has changed our lives, but I think that is one definite way that it has, you know, um, the way screens dominate. I was, I was in a place just this last weekend, I was teaching a, an in-person class. It was the first in-person class I had taught since the pandemic began. And I taught it at 11,000 feet at a place called high camp above, uh, lizard head pass near Telluride with just, um, about 12 women and, uh, and one man. Um, and uh, what was amazing is that there was absolutely no reception. <laughs> there was no electricity and no reception. And we were only there for probably 60 hours. Um, but that, that was a long time, you know, with everything that's going on. Like the last thing that happened before we went in is that Trump got COVID. And then that was it, <laughs> you know, and we were completely out of touch. 
And in this news cycle, that's a long time to be out of touch. You don't realize it. You know, it was all of Friday and all of Saturday and almost all of Sunday. And it was also kind of wonderful, you know, of course, because we were 100% where we were and nowhere else. And, um, and I think, you know, I think while technology has done a lot of great things for us, you know, there's definitely the losses to count up to. And one of those is how much I think young people want to go out into the wilderness. I want to get your thoughts on this, Amy Irvine. Um, you know, the, our screen time seems like keeps going up and up and up. Um, you know, it, but the downsides. I, I, I have uh, students who uh, I see on Facebook, and then they ask me for an extension, and I'm, I say, it, <laughs> no, you don't get one because you should have been writing and not on Facebook. And they're just like, I just can't focus. And true, we have been trained not to focus in this in this virtual world and this rapid news cycle and these reality shows and the way we binge watch shows now, like everything happens so quickly. Um, but I also see that this year with the slowing down and being shut in and living where we live, that so many people have turned back to the outer doors um, because they just didn't feel safe getting on an airplane and flying to Europe or Mexico or the Bahamas or Nepal or wherever people go. Um, they, they stay put. They bought a camper or they bought a new tent, and they're out there on these public lands. And there's some real concerns about how hard we're all hitting, the, you know, with so many of us hitting the public lands, um, even as the Trump administration, you know, Splashes monuments and funding to protect these places and provide the right infrastructure and everything that's required to keep the place in in decent in ecologically sustainable condition, but also in a condition that allows us to feel such pride in in this incredible heritage that we've we've been given. And so, it's I you know we're holding those two things at once and and I'm just hoping that at the end of this if whatever that is I, do, I don't think we're ever going back to the, the world as it was but I do hope that people come away with that sense of being having slowed down and and been out on on the public lands and without their their phone without much service and having had a slower quieter experience and and maybe that's something that now matters that moves up the list of all the things that we've given up. Maybe that's up at the top of the list of the things that stays. Hmm. I want to uh, ask a, a somewhat related question. Uh, have a little interview with the two of you from the publisher, Tory House Press. And uh, they, they wanted each of you to talk about wilderness and your relationship to wild places. Uh, Pam Houston, you say, almost everything I know about myself, I know because of my time spent in the wilderness. What if you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. You know, I, I mean, from when I was very young, you know, my parents would have no more gone camping. <laughs> like it was just not their thing. But I always found someone who would. You know, there was a guy in our neighborhood that I've written about elsewhere named Colonel Bob Miller, who used to take all the neighborhood kids camping and make us ride under blankets and told us we were going out west when we were really just going to a local park, you know, um, but, uh, and he taught me how to, you know, how to follow marks in the woods and how to use a compass and all those things, uh, to my high school roommate. I mean, my college roommate, we were in Ohio in very rural farmland, Ohio, but we drove down to West Virginia on the weekends and got as, as wild as we could. And then of course coming out West, um, you know, I was a river guide and I was a doll sheep hunting guide, um, a wilderness guide for many years. And, and yeah, I mean, it gave me confidence in myself. It put me up against um, some of the kinds of physical dangers that I faced in my childhood in my alcoholic and violent home, but it gave me a way to master those challenges, you know, um, and, you know, I was young and I bounced better than I do now. So luckily I didn't break my neck or anything. But, um, but yeah, you know, it, it's, and, and now as I'm older, um, you know, it's much more of an appreciation or an honoring, you know, the, in the absence of um, loving parents, uh, that, that's kind of a generalization, but, 
but in the absence of hands-on parents, they they uh, they were gone. They were absent a lot. You know, I really did turn from a very early age and even growing up to the natural world and natural spaces and the ocean and the mountain and the tree and the river, literally, um, to be mothered by them. I mean, to this day, um, if I'm having a really, really hard time emotionally about something, I will go out and curl up on the ground at the base of a tree and feel mothered by it. Um, I, I didn't realize that was strange until I started talking about it on book tour. <laughs> like I thought, oh, doesn't everybody just curl up at the base of a tree when they're feeling sad? And so, you know, the, the, the natural world has literally been my mother. Like, you know, I know that's a cliche, but, but it has, it has, it has held me and loved me and shown me the most beautiful thing I know of. And, um, which is why I'm so determined to fight for her, you know, um, or at least one reason why I'm so determined to fight for her in these times when, uh, you know, to, to use her and rape her and, uh, extract everything from her seems to be the, the primary thinking, um, you know, which of course gets back to my own culpability and the fact that I was flying a hundred thousand miles a year. You know, I, COVID has given me this pause moment to like, think about how I need to change my life and, you know, walk the talk and, and change my own habits. You know, I've done a lot of things as an environmentalist that have helped, but I've also ignored some of my own behaviors, you know? So anyway, uh, that's, yeah. I mean, I would say that, that, um, the natural world and also my life, with animals, both wild and domestic, you know, have taught me most of the things about how to be a human. Amy, Ron, the same question to you. Um, you, you speak about your relationship with, with wild places. Oh, I mean, I was, I was completely, I think sometimes I just crawled up out of the dirt. Um, my earliest memories are either on my grandparents' ranch in Southern Idaho um, or, out fishing or hunting, canoeing, skiing with my father. And um, by the time I was 19, I was following in my uncle's footsteps. He was a a climbing ranger in the Tetons for, oh gosh, 30 some odd years. And I spent many years in a tent as a climber. I worked as a a ranger at Timpanogos National Monument, and I caught fires the year that Yellowstone was burning. Remember when we thought that was a really big fire? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It seemed so overwhelming that it seemed like the whole West was on fire, and wow, um, we didn't realize how much bigger things could get. So, I mean, yes, that's always been the thing that saved me and shaped me, and I, along the way, learned not to take it for granted and and, uh, was horrified by many of the anti-wilderness bills that have been proposed in Utah, some of which have been passed. I was horrified again last night watching Pence, Mike Pence in the, in the vice presidential debate speak about public lands and, and fracking, about the natural world so dispassionately, you know, with absolutely zero, just this frozen face. And I thought this, this is how our souls die is if we don't have these connections. But I think where I really, like, it, where it really hit home was uh, late last year. And again, here's my, this is also my culpability in uh, traveling by air, although the rest of the year I live at home and I, I run my computer off sunshine and I don't commute to work. So I, I try to make up for it. Um, but I was in Mongolia and riding horses across the western part to the uh, Altai Mountains. And it is a place that used to have these just ancient tall grasslands and all the herdsmen, this incredible way of life with these animals, um, mixed herds of, of yaks and goats and sheep and uh, some cattle and these incredible horses and this incredibly balanced way of life. Um, and I say that conscious of the fact that it's easy for us to romanticize something like that, but it is really, if I could have chosen a life, that would have been my life. And it was romantic um, doing what we did, except for there's no longer any grass. Um, the winters are getting worse, so that these animals who are able to graze at uh, minus 40 are dying anyway because they can't, even though they can get under the snow, it's just so cold. And there's no grass that grows when it's not, when there is no snow because it's so dry. 
And so most of them have had to migrate into the cities and are living out at the edges and they're burning trash and uh, rubber tires to stay warm and starving. And it was, it, it really hit home to me how, how easy it is to, to have something disappear rapidly because it wasn't that long ago that that place was in the same exact condition it was in biologically and botanically as it was in, during the last ice age. And now the species are almost gone. The herds, the herds can't survive. And so I came away just feeling so sober about it. Like, um, not only is this when we, our souls start to die, but also this is what's coming for us, particularly in the Southwest. Um, the drought that we're in, um, we're headed in the same direction. And it also made me think that we each have to come up with our own sort of green deal. Um, Pam and I can fly a lot less to do what we do in terms of teaching or writing adventure stories um, or going to Washington to march um, for things that matter. Whatever that, it, whatever those things are, we, we certainly can, we can cut that back, but it's different for each of us. I, we have the luxury to work at home, so we'll work at home. I'll run my house and my computer off sunshine. Um, I'm not quite willing to give up coffee, even I know, even though I know that's on the list. It'll soon there won't be coffee because the places that grow it are too hot now. The beans are getting not as tasty as they used to be. So the the idea that Mongolia needs to come up with particular solutions, the Southwest certainly has to come up with particular solutions, and each of us has to. And the only way we're motivated to do that, and this is the long answer, is or the short answer of the long explanation. The only way we will do that is if we are connected to a wild place the way I have been held in southwest Colorado and certainly a lifetime and generations of my family being in Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, my guests for the hour are writers Amy Irvine and Pam Houston. And, uh, of course, as you know, uh, Pam Houston is author, among other books, of Deep Creek and Cowboys Are My Weakness. Amy Irvine is author of Trespass and Desert Cabal. And uh, together, uh, Torrey House Press has collected their correspondence from the last uh, few months uh, during these uh, times of pandemic. And the result is airmail, letters of politics, pandemics, and place. And uh, Amy Irvine and Pam Houston, my guests for the hour. More following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll soak in the soulful sounds of rhythm and blues from New Orleans to Africa and South America. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Maybe sunshine and maybe rain. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Rhythm and Blues, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guests are writers Pam Houston and Amy Irvine. And uh, when uh, the state of Colorado went into lockdown because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, um, the two writers who had never met began a correspondence. And uh, the letters are now collected in a book out from Tory House Press. It's called Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place. And uh, here's the final part of my conversation with uh, Amy Irvine and Pam Houston. In the letters, you, you each talk about uh, some of the things you're writing, uh, you know, during the, during the pandemic. I want to start with Pam Houston with this. Um, I was uh, very struck. Uh, I think I had remembered vaguely that you've done some of this work, but you, you talk about some of your work in prison, Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and you you said you've been writing some short stories where the the lead character is a, a psychologist, I think, in a, in, in a prison system. I wonder if you'd start with your. You write very movingly about uh, your work. These are 
at high security prisons, right? Are you are you teaching writing? What are yeah. you doing with uh, with these with these men? Um, it was I worked in the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo, which is a, a max a maximum security prison, not not a super max. Um, and what I was doing specifically was working on storytelling with them. Um, they had the the psychologists in the prison had chosen eight men who had served the short end of their sentence. They they had all committed murder, um, and they were serving in most cases a twenty five or a thirty five to life sentence, and they they had passed that first number, and so they were eligible for parole, basically. And I was working with them on storytelling so that when they went up before the parole board, they could tell their story, um, you know, of, of tell what happened on the day they committed murder, and they could tell it in such a way that the parole board would recognize that they understood what they had done and that they were reformed. Um, and so, you know, kind of uh, weirdly, <laughs> I was telling them the same exact things I tell my graduate students, you know, which is like lots of concrete physical detail, sink the emotion into the action. You know, it, it, it really was just, you know, like I would like I would coach anyone to tell a story so that the reader or the listener would be invested in the outcome and would um, feel that they were in the moment in the scene. So that's what I was doing with them. And, you know, as I say in the book, they were amazing, amazing humans. You know, um, they they were, in fact, reformed. They had spent their 25 years um, getting PhDs in philosophy and learning to be Reiki masters and, um, you know, you name it. Like, they had used their time and, you know, the the, the kind of, I would say, opportunity of the California prison system, which does have more opportunities than in a lot of other states, to better themselves. And, you know, they were as clear-eyed and and trustworthy as any people I have ever met. And and again, I know that sounds naive, and they call that hug-a-thug inside the prison when teachers come in and fall for the prisoners. Like, I, I recognize that I'm perhaps... Um, you know, sometimes in my life too willing to see the best and not the right people, but I do not believe this was a case of that. These men were, um, had thought about their lives in a way that many of us don't. And they had been absolutely brutalized as children, not only in dysfunctional families, but also by a system that wants them to go to prison and sets everything up for them so that they almost have to. So, I learned so much about the school to prison pipeline and about um, they were almost all from Watts uh, in, in Los Angeles. And anyway, it was such an incredible learning experience for me, um, learning about my country and learning about these systems that keep um, primarily uh, black people um, in, uh, down, you know. And so um, I learned, you know, I was so grateful. And when I would come out of the prison after 10 hours of being in the prison, and the prison, as you can imagine, is a very, very intense place. Um, and I would come out after 10 hours and I would like stop at a Jamba Juice or something. And I would be like, okay, which world do I belong in? You know, I would sort of teeter there between these two worlds, like this one world of like ultimate honesty and ultimate reveal and vulnerability and then come back to where everybody's sort of out at the Jamba Juice kind of faking it. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and again, I know that's romantic, but I, it was an incredible learning experience. And so I wanted to write some stories told from the point of view of a woman who spent her life in those spaces. Yeah, very, uh, very impactful. Um, so, uh, Amy Irvine, uh, understand you're, um, I don't know, writing a story about motherhood. Um, and as, uh, somewhat related, I wonder if you could tell this, uh, as, uh, this is uh, just incredible. You were an EMT in Utah, right? This, and this incident happened in uh, yeah. Little Cottonwood Canyon, was it? Well, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I worked, I had an EMT certification, which served me in numerous jobs like fighting fires and, um, 
working as a park ranger, that kind of thing. Um, I just happened to be up climbing in Little Cottonwood Canyon when ah. when I think the accident that you're pointing to um, occurred. So I was there as um, just another climber who happened to hear the body hit, which is a terrible sound. And um, so I... If you're asking, like, that's a story I told in the book. It's not something I'm working on, but those are the kinds of stories I'm interested in. Um, this particular instance, when, when this boy fell off the top of a, a climb onto a granite slab, um, I was, I ran up because I heard the shouts for help. I heard, I, I knew that something horrible had happened. And I remember running up there, and it was all men, um, good guys I knew, all competent climbers, um, except for this one young pair of climbers and it was this one of the two boys in this young pair that had fallen um uh, incredibly he had untied from the rope on a very slabby surface that really was all friction and and no positive holds whatsoever and i got up there and everybody who had actually watched him fall was quite traumatized understandably and i remember thinking i'm just a small woman in lycra what can i do (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, but to go to that training and to, you know, then turn that kind of, you know, use that same kind of training to hunker down with a a child who has been um, severely life-threateningly ill on numerous occasions, sometimes several times a night when she has large seizures. And just understanding, you know, there was something I misunderstood about motherhood, which was that it was a sort of passive domestic role. I felt really trapped. I felt incredibly trapped. And it wasn't until I started employing my EMT skills and my rescue skills and my survival skills as a mother to save my daughter and to really save my own sanity um, that I understood that, that we got to be more than that. And I, you know, I think a little bit of it was the Mormon upbringing. Um, and my father was quite a chauvinist. And even, you know, working in the environmental movement, I think um, it is very, it it still has a very patriarchal, almost macho kind of construct, and that was really problematic for me at times. So I just felt it was really exciting to sort of find my own way and understand that I I knew how to work on a boy. We couldn't save him, of course, but but that I knew what to do, and if he were, if we were able to save him, I was the one who could do it, and... And I just knew I wanted to keep moving in that direction, even as a mother, and that's what I wanted to hand on to my daughter. And so when I discovered that there were these women warriors out of Mongolia, off the Siberian steppes, that that, uh, they were one of the earliest horse cultures, and these women were mothers, uh, but they were also unbelievably good riders, and they rode and, and, like, looked sacked Athens at one point. They, I mean, they were fierce warriors and brilliant riders and knew how to fight on horseback, which leveled the playing field if they were fighting against stronger men. Um, they were incredible hunters. Um, and their burials show that they are, when, they, when you excavate their tombs, they're buried with the same kind of regalia and honor and, and status that the, the male warriors that are buried next to them are. And, and wonderfully, the men are sometimes buried with the children, cradling children instead of the women. And so it kind of, it kind of broke me out of all the ways I felt bound by patriarchy, um, which I, I do think it comes from being raised in Utah and being part of a largely Mormon and conservative family. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, all my writing now is about how do I continue, even as a mother now, to continue to be my warrior self. And we have a planet to save. We have a democracy to save. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, you, you near the end of this letter, you say, I'm sick of, of being pegged as the fierce mama bear because I fight fiercely for my kid. And then you talk about how, so this is where the women warriors come in. Right. Yeah. Yes, I think you know the first mama bear is like too easy of a trope that that or a metaphor that we I've heard so much and it it really I feel like as much as I think mother bears are incredibly fierce and I have come up face to face with a a sow grizzly with two cubs up in uh, northern British Columbia and had quite a scary standoff on the trail and she was truly the scariest thing I've ever come up against but um, also the most awesome. Um, but I, I, I just felt like it relegated me too much to some sort of construct that 
was pre-prescribed for me. And so I just, I wanted to get away from that and, and come back to these women warriors who weren't, I, we're too easily pegged as beasts of burden or fierce animals and, and not much else. By the way, uh, made reference to your daughter. It was it was, it was nice to kind of get to know her a little bit through this this book. She sounds delightful. I wonder if you could uh, just briefly tell the story behind. Uh, I, I can't let the interview go uh, without uh, mentioning desserts for the apocalypse. <laughs> oh yeah, Ruby is an extraordinary human being, and she is also a warrior in the making. I think Pam can attest to this because Pam and Ruby took to one another immediately. They're cut of the same cloth. <laughs> Um, when they finally got to meet, um, Ruby was as excited to meet Pam as I was. Um, Ruby has had an incredibly challenging life, um, and she's okay with me talking openly about her epilepsy, and it's a severe, it's really hard to manage, and I've spent years um, getting very little sleep and in and out of doctor's offices, and often... um, struggling against a system that was designed to dismiss mother's anxiety, mother's uh, description of symptoms. I was even, like, accused of having Munchausen syndrome by proxy. But the truth is, Ruby has some really, I mean, she's been challenged in huge ways. So she's also ready for a fight, and she's also super resourceful, super resilient. And so on a day when I said, you know, it looks like things are getting hairy in the world, like we're in a serious drought here. Um, we take one or two showers a week, and that's it because our well is so low. And when the pandemic started, we we I my Mormon jeans kicked in, and I started stocking the pantry. Um, Ruby hopped on the computer and started with her own list and handed it to me. And I said, "What is this?" And she said, "It's the desserts for the apocalypse." And she'd ordered all the sort of emergency ration um, desserts, like freeze dried strawberry shirt, shortcake, and um, she'd ordered she put a lot in her shopping cart, thinking that that was really what it was going to get us through these times. <laughs> yeah, that's delightful. That's wonderful. Uh, that's Pam, my girl. Yeah. <laughs> Pam Houston, uh, just the next letter would, uh, over from uh, your response uh, to, to the letter where uh, Amy Irvine tells this, this story of the, of the young man who, you know, fell off the cliff. Um, mm-hmm. You, you said you haven't been anybody close to, you know, with the crushed skull, but uh, you did sew a pirate's arm up once from shoulder to elbow using an all a thin leather string and his tattoos to make sure I was keeping the line straight. So my, my response to that, that is, is, wow. That is true. Yeah, that's a true <laughs> yeah. story. Okay. Um, I, I just So a little bit, uh, just a paragraph down in this letter. This is uh, Pam Houston. Um, you say, I'll just read this a couple sentences. Beautiful and brutal, introspective and ferocious. I'm pretty sure the only way through is up high on the cantle, mane and tail flying, trying to stay safe, trying to be invisible can only lead to despair. You go on to say, the only time I really feel okay anymore is when I'm fighting for the things I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I guess that's everything we've talked about uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I'll just say as a way to conclude, I mean, that is true. You know, um, uh, the current administration, from the minute this president showed up on the scene, I knew that every single thing that matters to me was going to be threatened and it was going to be attempted to be dismantled. Um, and, and the list of that is, you know, of course, the environment, the natural world, natural places, designated public land, but also education and art and diversity and um, inclusion and um you know i could go on and on but we all sort of know the terms and and you know i have been i have fallen into deep despair over the last 4 years um and at other times too of course but more profoundly over the last 4 years but what always pulls me up is taking some kind of action you know whether that's writing a letter to my congressman or whether it's sending 400 postcards to kentucky or whether it's writing a letter to Amy or whether it's going into these uh, socially distanced book readings where like the people, the the 25 or 40 people are there and they think, Oh, this is so much fun. This is the first time we've been out and we get to order wine from a waitress and everybody thinks they're going to have a good time. And by the time we're done with the evening, they're like, let's go get the vote out. You know, (laughs) you can see them change into, you know, into warriors for the cause. And, 
And I, I absolutely, you know, I, I say in the book, and this is true, you know, I was given 40 years, um, you know, as a, as a privileged cisgendered white woman, I was given 40 years between the tyranny of my father's house and the tyranny of this administration. And it, the fact that the bill has come due now seems only reasonable. You know, it, it seems fine with me, and I'm really willing to do whatever it takes um, to fight for and save, you know, not only um, not only my public lands, but also, you know, women's rights and and uh and equality and justice and you know all the big all the big abstractions. Well, good place to end the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to both of you. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The Green River is a major physical divide in eastern Utah, yet it's also a lifeline for drinking water, agriculture, and recreation. This week, learn how the river has been a barrier and a bridge for one community along its banks. First, this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the arid west, water is a force for both division and connection. The deep canyons of the Green River have barred human travel for thousands of years. One of the few natural crossing points is the 10-mile stretch of water at the modern-day town of Green River. This crossing was settled in 1878 as a postal station along the Overland Mail Route. Called Blake after the man who ran it, the station became a stop on the new Denver and Rio Grande Railroad in 1883. Aside from the railroad bridge, for the next 30 years, the only way to transport people and goods across the river was a ferry service. A wagon bridge finally replaced the ferry in 1910. When the bridge collapsed in 1946, the disruption was dramatic on both sides of the river. On the west, traffic was diverted far north through Duchesne, while farms on the east could not get their melons to market. Even today, that rebuilt bridge and adjacent I-70 remain the only crossings of the Green River for hundreds of miles. As well as a barrier to travel, the Green River forms the dividing line between Emory and Grand Counties. At the crossing, the town of Blake sat on the east bank and Elgin on the west. By 1917, the riverbed had shifted about a mile and resulted in a prolonged court battle between the counties. Yet the close proximity of Blake and Elgin had forged a single community at the old Green River Crossing, unifying residents through their connections to the river. Together, they had built diversion dams and canals to irrigate their farms. Residents on both sides relied on the river for water supplies, and everyone enjoyed water recreation. For over 50 years, the town hosted the annual friendship cruise that brought boaters together to celebrate their love of the river. No longer divided, the town at the old Green River Crossing is one community spanning both sides of its namesake waterway, and it's the heart of a region centered on the river. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, Utah. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.